Welcome to the Football Business Academy podcast. The FBA is a football business educational company entirely dedicated to the football industry. We run a professional master in football business and a number of certificates across the world. Thank you for being with us today. Now enjoy the episode and let's build the future of football together. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are tuning in from. Welcome to the seventh episode of our free weekly live webinars brought to you by the Football Business Academy in partnership with SoccerX. My name is Christian Dobrev. I'm the Chief Partnerships Officer at the FBA, and I'll be moderating this webinar. Today, we'll talk about the impact on women's football, because although we've looked at some aspects of it in the previous episodes, women's football needs and deserves more prominence. And indeed, many of our previous webinar viewers have been asking questions specifically about it. So at this point, I would like to introduce our guests for today's webinar, who are all renowned experts in the area of women's football. To start, we have Tatiana Haeni, who is head of women's football at the Swiss Football Association. Then all the way to the west coast of the United States, a very good morning to Mike Golub, who is the president of business for the Portland Thorns and the Portland Timbers. And Mike is also a guest lecturer at the FBA uh, on our master's program, so we know him very well from there. Next, it's also my pleasure to welcome Nicole Allison, who recently joined the FBA's faculty as our new women's football development professor. She's been working in different parts of women's football throughout the years, most notably as the general manager of Tottenham Hotspur Ladies. Uh, and she has also founded her very own sports consultancy called NA Sport. And last but not least, we have Pedro Malavia, who joins us from Spain, where he works as women's football director for La Liga. Welcome to all four of you. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Uh, Nicole, let me start with you. Now, I know that there's been a lot of talks about the impact of COVID-19 on the football industry at large and specifically on women's football. Um, and there are many concerns, right? Uh, people are asking what is going to happen you know, due to the budget cuts, due to the, the funding. Um, so arguably, you know, it's one of the biggest questions that people working in this field want an answer to. Um, and we know that in most cases, club, in most clubs, the conditions for women's teams and female players already were far from ideal. So what's your take on all of this? How do you see this COVID-19 impacting women's football? Yeah, hi. Well, good afternoon to everybody. Thanks for having me on, uh, FBA. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's a really good uh, question and, and obviously an important point. I think the first thing, like you said in your introduction, is to, to put women's football, um, you know, properly on the map and, and in discussion points like this is, is really important. Um, I feel that maybe it's been missed out on a, on a few occasions um, from, from certain media um, outlets. So I think it's really important that we're discussing it. Um, I'm an optimistic person anyway, so I like to look at the opportunity um, rather than neg the negatives. Um, but obviously, you know, I don't think anyone's or any business, any industry is immune to the problems that we're all, um, you know, facing right now and also where the future is. Um, unfortunately, we're all sort of searching for answers. Um, we, we don't have um, all the answers and there's a lot of uncertainty. But I think actually what we need we need to do in the women's game is focus on the opportunity, focus on what leadership can do, um, what the right culture can do, um, be that at rights holders, brands, uh, the players and athletes themselves and what they can do is, is very important. So, you know, my take is, of course, there's going to be fragility um, within this, but uh, there's also opportunity. And I think 
you know, we've got some really fantastic people leading women's football around the world now. And actually, I, I see a position of strength um, and I am quite excited for the future. I think it's an opportunity to reset. We've, we've heard a lot of people within the football family use that word um, across women's football, men's football as well. Um, and I think we've got to make sure that we, we are innovative and, and that, you know, this is a time of disruption. Um, and we need disruptive leaders to, to ensure that women's football continues that upward trajectory that we've been on. Yeah, definitely. And Mike, with about 20,000 average attendees per game last season, um, the Portland Thorns have by far the highest average attendance in any women's football team. Um, does that mean that you're suffering more than, than the other teams right now? Or what can you tell us about the situation um, over there and, and across the NWSL? Yeah, you know, it's it's been, uh, it's as you pointed out, Christian, it's been an amazing run here in Portland. We've uh, finished our eighth season in the NWSL. And um, our attendance has grown every year to the point of averaging over 20,000 fans a game. And unlike most professional sports teams, men or women, um, here in the States, we're, we're profitable with the Thorns. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the fallout from the virus uh, is hitting us hard. But, um, you know, we and this is hard for anybody running any business, but particularly in, in our industry to Keep in mind the long-term vision and the long-term health and the decisions you make today, even in the environment that we're in, which is which is uh, really, really difficult for any sports team. And so we believe the vital signs for women's football, as Nicole said, in the States are extremely positive. Um, ironically, um, literally days, weeks before the virus and the quarantine hit, uh, the league announced a new national television contract with CBS National Network with international broadcast deal with Twitch, uh, announced our new commissioner. So there are some really amazing things happening. There are new cities around our, our country that are very interested in expansion teams. So the league is going to grow the number of teams. So a lot of great things were happening, obviously all on pause now. Um, but we believe, you know, as Nicole said, that, yeah, it's going to be a a tough sort of dip that we're going to have to come out of. Uh, but the long-term prospects for women's football in the States, we believe, are extremely positive. That's great to hear, Mike. Tatiana, as, as with any crisis, the way an organization responds and, and bounces back essentially depends on its structure, right, and, and how it makes decisions. What, uh, what approach does the Swiss Football Federation uh, have, and, and where did women's football fall in? Yeah, I think every every crisis is is challenging. Um, we had a, a home office as of early mid March, and when it really hit us badly, like everybody else on different timeframes, we we got together immediately and we had uh, basically daily uh, phone calls, Zoom meetings, and and uh, the first uh, topics we had really to look at was what what are the potential factors to impact us financially and with contracts with partners you're having. Uh, and then, of course, the management with those partners to, you know, to be in contact with them, to explain to them where we are, what's possible, what's not possible. Um, so actually, it was really busy at the, at the beginning. We also had to look at, at the staff. We're about 100 employees at the Swiss FA. Um, we have some uh, employment rules, which we had to look at to, to put people on reduced working hours a day, uh, which we did on, on different percentages, depending the job, uh, the jobs they're having. 
so it was really busy and, and a difficult time and not not a fun moment to to work in uh, but i do think we handled it really well we we communicated quite openly and sent out emails and, and were really approachable we tried to you know reconnect with our staff all of us on, on at least weekly uh, yeah so just things you can do in in this moment um uh, for women's football, I do think we're in a in a good position, and um, it's not because it's me, but I got elected as a to a director of women's football um, in March, and with this I got promoted to the management board. So from day one on, I was involved in all those meetings, and I do think even in that example it was good, because when we talk about the league, maybe later on, uh, I could make sure women's football, the women's national teams and our league is represented in all the decisions which the FA took. And as we all know, because we, you're all experts, when we communicated to the media and to um, the fans and everybody else, we always made sure women's football was, the wording in our communication was, was clearly also highlighting women's football. And uh, I, I think that was really valuable. And I do think it, it helped that I was sitting there and made sure it doesn't get forgotten. Great. We'll definitely come back on that. Petra, over to you. Um, so you're in charge of women's football for La Liga, but maybe just to explain to our viewers, um, the women national uh, competition in Spain is actually run by the Spanish Federation, right? So can you explain us a bit more about how this dynamic exactly works and, and why is it like this in the first place? Yeah. Hi, hi, everyone. Thanks for the invitation and hope everyone is doing, doing well and safe at home. Um, yeah, well, as you said, um, five years ago, La Liga started um, a project to to really push women's football forward to help our clubs. Uh, we we had in those time 2015, we had more than 20 clubs that were La Liga clubs, so linked to men's football that were that had women's football. So La Liga decided to start a project uh, in order to to push women's football forward to take. To, to add all the all the experience by running a professional men's competition to women's football. And of course, it, it always has been the, the Federation League, a Federation League, but we, we wanted just to put our, also a little bit of our experience in order to, to help. Uh, and and mostly from the hand of the clubs, yeah. And and yeah, and during this time, this time we've, we've done a lot, of, a lot of initiatives together with the clubs in order to, to increase awareness. Uh, we, we've, invested massively in content creation and in making all the information on women's football accessible to to the people in Spain uh, in order to enhance um, the TV production, also putting some technology on the broadcasting, uh, education also on our clubs. So yeah, we try to put all our efforts in order to, to make women's football a little, bit, a little bit more attractive, so to say. Okay, great. Nicole, back to you. Um, now, I know you, you spend your time in, uh, in Tottenham, of course, but you've also dealt with many other uh, football clubs across uh, the UK and, and abroad, uh, also with players. Um, and I'm sure you've read the, the FIFPRO report that came out last week on, on, on raising the game of the women's football, right? Um, and according to that report, it says that most women's clubs don't even have the backroom staff to fulfill players' needs, right? So talking about physios, coaches, trainers, medical staff, Etc. Coming out of this confinement and looking at the different protocols that are being talked about, do you think clubs, female teams, will be able to keep their female players fit uh, and engaged without risking their health? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and I think that FIFA Pro report um, was fantastic. It was a good weekend reading for me. Um, so I urge everybody to, to read that. 
Um, it, resource is definitely an issue um, within the clubs that, that I certainly you know, know and, and speak with on a regular basis. Um, there is a variety um, of resource available, um, whether at the top of the WSL, towards the bottom of the, of the championship, so the second tier in England. Um, and I think, you know, I would be fearful that um, any kind of move to, to come back, uh, even playing, you know, behind closed doors, um, it, it potentially puts players at risk. It would need to be absolutely 100% sure that every club in those leagues was um, completely confident that they could have the right facilities, the right people to ensure player safety. And of course, we've got to remember as well in, in the women's game, you know, these players aren't necessarily just living um, on their own in their own house. They're, they may be living with other players. They might be living with family. The, the opportunity for that kind of domino effect, if there was problems with infection, is a bit of a concern. So I think, um, you know, as we would all say across, uh, across everything, any industry, the, the moving to get it back into football and get us back playing has to be done with absolute 100% um, security that it is safe. Yeah, Mike, there, there's been initial talks suggesting that the NWSL teams can, can go back uh, to training in, in a matter of a couple of weeks. Um, how are you handling that part of the situation with, with your team? And, and do you think that overall NWSL players are better prepared to keep themselves fit due to the fact that, if I'm not wrong, they have longer off-seasons? On, on the first question, Christian, um, you know, we're obviously working with uh, federal health authorities and here in, in Oregon working with our local and state authorities. And so no team, I think in any sport, and Nicole alluded to this, is going to put any players or coaches or staff at risk. So we're going to be very careful, deliberate, thoughtful, and completely compliant as we begin to reintroduce training, you know, players to training. We believe that as early as this week, we may begin here in Oregon to be able to have individual training. So with social distance measures and a lot of very new stringent protocol in place to begin to have our players um, come back to our training facility and, and have individual training. If the proverbial curve keeps going down and everything goes well, that might get expanded to more group training in, in the coming weeks. Um, our players, like, like any professional player around the world, are unbelievably diligent. We have equipment, we've had equipment and Uh, sent to their homes, and, uh, and we have online daily workouts and training sessions with them. So as fit as you can be without being on the field, I think our players are there. And obviously, unlike the rest of the world, um, players are still in their preseason, so haven't had the rigors of the, the full season on their bodies yet. So um, it'll be tantamount to another preseason, but I think once we get back to training, our players will, will, will hit stride pretty quickly. Right. Let's hope for the best uh, on that front. Um, Tatiana, the um, international match calendar naturally also has been affected by, by this uh, pandemic. And uh, it seems that it's going to be pretty, you know, uh, in disarray for the next few years. Do you think this impact will be different for women's national team competitions compared to the men's? Uh, different, yeah, of course it's different because the, the, the schedules are different, the calendar per se is different with a different number of dates. Um, yeah, well, yes, I do think the impact is different. I'm not sure if it's um, worse or better. Um, I think that's something to be to be seen. 
but what we do know is that in, in women's football, because the number of the full professional players, internationally speaking, is, is still rather low, uh, as we know from the FIFPRO report, and Nicole has mentioned it, you know, the back staff is, is not on everywhere on the same level. Uh, and the number of matches is, is really high. And now with this uh, break, of course, uh, if the countries continue to play, then that means a super short summer break. Um, the ones who do not play have not played for months and have trained as, as uh, marathon athletes and, and athlete, track and field athletes, not as football players. Uh, so we don't really know what, what that exactly will mean. We just know the, you know as soon as, as we can, everybody will go back on a pitch. You will have to play all these matches. And if you look at the number of matches in women's football, this is really something I think we should look at on, a, on an international level because I, I think it's too high in, in many countries, not all, in some it's too low, to be fair, but on, on the, on the um, best performing athletes with the international matches a year, with the league and club matches a year, with the increased number of Champions League matches a year coming next season, um, and then putting that in perspective to semi-professional status or clubs with semi-professional amateur uh, conditions, um, then I think uh, you don't need to be a, a doctor to figure out why we have too high um, numbers of injuries in women's football. Uh, and of course, we also have to mention just the strange competition format when you play, uh, actually you play the final tournament of the Euros during the qualification phase of the Women's World Cup. So th this is something because we had to move the tournaments to other years. This um, I think we have to accept because it's just a, a result of this crisis, but it's, it, it will be a bit weird, I think, for, for the players to play those matches. Yeah, thanks. And, and just have a quick follow-up question from uh, one of our viewers, Bethany Hushan, um, essentially relating to the fact that the men's Euros have been postponed and, and the Olympics have been postponed, and therefore also the women's Euros have been postponed by a year. Do you think this is a, a good thing for, for, for women's players? I think plenty of different opinions. Um, to really have one answer, you need to know all the, the details and discuss it in depth. I know that um, Alexander Pop in Germany also raised the idea of playing the men's and the women's Europe together, uh, which is also worth a thought, I think. Um, I personally, my opinion was not to move it uh, a year later until the Olympics got moved. Uh, and then when the Olympics got moved, it became obvious that you can't play two final tournaments uh, in a year. Maybe there would have been an option if the three European teams at the Olympics considered the Olympics not as important and would prefer to play the Euros. So again, you know, there's plenty of things you need to talk about. Um, given all the things we know now, maybe it was a, you know, not a nice decision, but the best overall. Yeah. And, and Pedro, what about in Spain? Because um, the Spanish FA, if I understand, is scheduled to take a decision by the end of this week at the latest regarding the current season of, of the, the women competitions. Um, contrary to the men's competitions, overall sentiment is that the decision there will be actually to, to finish it right now and, and not, uh, well, to, to stop it right now and not finish it. Um, and instead, you know, start preparing for the next season. Um, I imagine this might upset some people, but what's the, um, what's the reality? What's the thought process behind the, the Spanish FA's probable decision of, uh, of stopping the season, do you think? Yeah, some some weeks ago we had so uh, first of all in Spain we we have um, we we have to build we have a, a big clubs association that has integrated more than 80 clubs that are playing in the first second and third division here in Spain 
And in terms of the first division, we have 13 out of the 16 teams that, that compete in first division. So um, these teams are meeting regularly. And, and some weeks ago, we had a meeting when the first um, intention of the, the federation was to, to close the, the season. We, we asked the federation that, that uh, in our opinion, it was too, too early yeah, to take this decision because um, I remember Nicole was saying, being optimistic, yeah, I'm also very op optimistic. And if, if I can say so, one of the, of the things that is good for women's football, if, if any, in this pandemic is that, that women's football, at least in Spain, has grown so much that is, it is not, no more just a competition that you can just close and that's it. It's not just girls playing football in one team and, okay, it's over and let's start next season. Our clubs, if the if the um, if the season would be finished as as it is, we would lose only in TV rights nearly to six hundred thousand uh, euros only per our contract, plus all the commercial, plus other incomes. That everything together, it's more than one million euros. So there's a big impact, a big economic impact on this. And this can impact the contracts of the players. This can impact the stability of the clubs. This can impact so many things that this kind of decisions should be taken considering the whole environment. So one of the things that we asked the Federation was first, it was too early. Second, we couldn't take or it shouldn't be taking a decision together or the same decision for all the non-professional competitions in Spain. There are only two professional competitions um, in terms of football, in terms of soccer, that is first male and second male division uh, football. The rest of the competition, women's football, third division men, fourth division men, every, everything is non-professional. So the Federation was saying to take a decision, a common decision for all those competitions. And we asked the Federation, hey, women's football is not just one more competition of this group. It's, it's something different, yeah? And And... And all the players in Spain have a contract. Uh, there are TV rights, there are fans, there are stadiums. There is the league not to be decided. So in terms of integrity of the, of the competition, once again, it's not just friends saying, okay, it's over and let's start in some months. So we are saying, please take the decision. If any, it should be taken. We, have, we still have time. It's only eight match days to be played to be finished. So this can be even made in one month if, if, if we want to do. FIFA also has said, okay, you can postpone the season. You can, you can, you can play until July, for example, the way that many, many men's leagues are playing. So the players are asking, hey, we want to play. The clubs are asking, we want to play. Of course, it will depend on the, on the evolution of the pandemic. And what we are asking is, first of all, in men's football, we know the protocols. So we know the minimum requirements in order to say let we can we can reopen the competition in a, in a in a safe environment. Let's see. We don't know still the protocols that should be should be uh, applied to women's football. So uh, we know the protocols for men's professional football, but no the government either the federation has made any decision on that. So we believe that okay if the if the health protocols are too strong because in here. Um, uh, I don't know, we, when we talked before, we have the big, big clubs linked to men's professional football that could really follow those requirements. But we also have smaller clubs that, that don't have these resources or they are playing, for example, in facilities that are run by the local government or something like this. And they might have problems. 
and it might be a possibility, of course, to, to postpone the competition if the health requirements are too high. But first of all, we need to analyze this. We need to know them. And then let's take a common decision. And what we are asking from the clubs association uh, to our federation is let's talk and let's take this decision all together and for the good of women's football. If, if there is no way to continue with the competition, of course, we will need to close the competition because health is the most important thing. But please, let's consider women's football, at least in Spain, if, if it's from a legal point of view, if it, it's not a professional competition, from a reality point of view, it's becoming a professional competition. Right. And, and also just to, to follow up on that, um, if the decision is to stop the season, the league would be expanded by next season, right? So the two clubs that are actually right now in relegation zone, they wouldn't actually relegate. Instead, there would be two new ones coming up. Well, we don't have this information because uh, many, many possibilities are in the press, uh, you know, in the, in the media. They are saying, okay, no, 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 no one is going to second division, get down to second division, but maybe two are coming up or four are coming up. We've also had some, some idea that I hope it's not implemented that is uh, 20 clubs and two groups of 10 in first division. I think this would kill women's football and would, would kill the evolution of the product and of the league. I don't think that this will be implemented, but let's see. I mean, what we are asking and we really believe from the club perspective, clubs should be directly involved in any decision on the competition. Yeah, very good. Uh, Nicole, back to you. Um, over the past few months and years, you know, everybody has been uh, observing and, 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 and probably, as, I guess, talking about the fact that women's football has been gaining incredible momentum. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, this begs the question, like, what's the data showing us, right? I mean, because you can see a lot and hear a lot, but what's the data really showing about the development of, of women's football as a whole, of how to grow fan bases, to grow commercially? Yeah, really, really good point. And I think that was something that was also highlighted in the FIFPRO report in terms of that lack of data makes it quite difficult for us to look at that economic growth um, and the value of you know, properties within the game. Um, and that's something that I've experienced through, through working you know, in women's football, but, but also actually in, in men's football, as you go sort of lower down the leagues, the lack of data um, and sophistication in terms of how clubs utilize different you know, business intelligence tools, uh, digital you know, tools to be able to engage with fans, learn about their fan bases so that they can commercialize better. Um, and we've seen some really positive, you know, steps in women's football from viewership audiences of the World Cup, attendances of, of big games. You know, we've obviously had um, Atletico Madrid and, and Barcelona, 60 odd thousand. I think that was um, last season um, here in the WSL. So far this season, we had Tottenham um, against Arsenal, which was 38,000. We had games at the Etihad, um, Stamford Bridge as well. And some really big um, attendances for those one-off big events um, that had sort of effective marketing and, and resource put around those one games. What I'm not then seeing is is how that follows through into the next game when they you know go and play their home games at their normal home stadium. And I think a lot of that is down to the lack of data, but also the lack of resource um, and understanding at the club level. Um, one, of, one of the points in the FIFA report as well was around the ineffective marketing of you know, the, the games, the domestic games. And I think it just shows that 
when we have those big events uh, at the, the sort of parent stadium, the men's stadium, a lot of effective marketing goes into that, a lot of resource. But actually, how do we follow through with that? How are we capturing the information on those fans that we get? Um, we've seen some really good examples in women's sport. Um, in cricket, for example, the 2017 Women's World Cup final um, at Lords, they had 65% um, new attendees, um, so new ticket purchasers. They had never purchased a ticket for professional cricket before. Um, and that data really showed them, you know, how much of them were, were females, how many of them were families. And it allowed, has allowed them to actually generate growth strategies to follow that sort of attendance and that interest through. And that's what I'm not yet seeing really in women's football. Mike, Mike what, what, what's your take on this? Because clearly in the case of Portland, you have a very successful men's team and the most successful women's team. Um, and I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, European clubs and other clubs um, around the world that are probably envious of, of your success, right? Um, why do you think from your perspective, has no other club managed to achieve the numbers of, of the Thorns? And what, what would you recommend to those people? No, I, I don't want to pretend to understand everybody's situation in their business. But I'd say this. If, if we all step back a decade and look at where women's football has come in the last decade, in many respects, we have, together as an industry, have taken enormous strides. And there's been in many, many parts of the world exponential growth in the support, the resources, the mind space for the women's game. And Pedro probably is too modest to tell you, but you know, what La Liga has done has been incredible. And the numbers and the growth uh, have, have is evidence of what I believe is the necessary ingredients. And then that, added, that one is have a commitment, whether you're a federation like Pedro or a club like us, to have a true commitment and belief in the, the future of the women's game. Secondly, as Nicole said, the, the adequate resources. And then thirdly, and it sounds so fundamentally obvious, is, is a plan to execute against those resources and, and that commitment. I think we've done a nice job of that in Portland. We, we believe from the top down that the women's game is as important as our men's club. And we have structured our business uh, against those principles. So for example, our head of commercial, who's a very highly compensated person who works for me, um, he and his team are do both men's and women's games. There's nobody in our company that doesn't administer both uh, on the business side, um, the women's and men's games together. So there's no separation. There's no, hey, you go down the hall and let us know how the women's game goes. It's everybody is charged, structured, and compensated, not unimportant, uh, against both their goals for the men's team and the women's team. And we're not two teams, we're one club. And it sounds like such an obvious philosophy, uh, but it's amazing how few clubs uh, really, really truly adopt that and act on it. And so, listen, we, we've done some things right. We have a good market, we have a good facility, we've had success on the field. We have eight World Cup players. So we've got a lot of things going for us, but I think really it comes down to, and, and La Liga is, is a great example of that. On, on a federation level, it's a true belief, a commitment to uh, devote the necessary resources, even if the return on those resources aren't, uh, isn't immediate. So, you know, we, you know, I mentioned at the top of my remarks, we're 
it's about investing and growing. And we may not see all of the fruits of our labor and our investment for a number of years, in some cases, maybe even a generation, but we believe that we will. And then having the right plan to execute against those goals and to deploy those resources as strategically as possible. And I think that's what we've done here in Portland pretty well. And, and, and we see it around, around women's football elsewhere in the world. But to your point, Christian, maybe not as widespread as it might. Yeah, I, I guess it'll take a few years uh, before they catch up. But eventually, if, if, as you said, if they keep the strategy, they put the right resources behind it and they execute on that, then uh, someday they'll, uh, they'll come compete for your numbers. Um, Tatiana, speaking of funding, um, both FIFA and UEFA have uh, already announced that they will be supporting their member associations to, um, to, yeah, to cover this period uh, of the COVID-19. Um, if I'm not mistaken, both put together will be about 5 million per federation. Um, how does the Swiss FA plan to allocate these funds and, and how will you decide how much of it will go to the women's game? Yeah, so um, obviously we pre-discussed those questions and then and I verified because I wanted to make sure that I'm not saying something wrong. So what I can tell you today is it's actually not more funds from FIFA or UEFA. It's a, a decision to uh, put those funds easier available. So they're both uh, organizations. These funds are linked to, to clear guidelines, um, which is, of course, right. Uh, timelines when it will be paid um, in terms of um, in relation to certain deliverables from the associations. So that has not changed. The amount is not higher for the moment. Maybe there will be something to come, which we, of course, all hope because, the, you know, the pyramid starts from the top. The moment FIFA decides to um, give more funds available, WEFA will do, uh, as we as a national football association can do, and it will go down to, to every club or to players at the end of the day. So for the moment, um, no, but what has been done is that it's uh, easier to get access to, to those funds. So the two, uh, UEFA and FIFA has, uh, have um, made sure that the money can be achieved or received earlier, and it doesn't need to be linked to certain development projects or other projects. It can be used to cover costs due to COVID. So for the moment, in certain cases, definitely good news, but no news so far on how much more it will be. And when it comes to women's football, uh, this money anyway goes to women's football, the Swiss FA, the budget of women's football, generally speaking, is way, way higher than what the Swiss FA gets from FIFA and or UEFA together or, of course, separate. So it will be way more. And the way we work is really um, not so much one by one, which I think is a good approach. I'm a total opponent of, of saying, you know, what comes in for women's football goes to women's football, what comes in in men's football goes to men's football. I think that's a wrong approach. It's more like uh, Mike said, it's, it's, it's a business, it's one company and you have different assets. Um, you have men's football, women's football, youth football, you may have futsal, uh, you, you may have uh, more social programs for older people or, or name it. So I think every organization, club or national association needs to figure out um, where do they want to put how much money to, to make, make that you know, program or product grow. And um, so that's why, as, as, as I've always said, since year to me comes down to decision making. Uh, we need people in the decision making bodies who do believe in women's football, who see it as a one. And if they do, then more money gets allocated to women's football. That's uh, actually, it sounds really easy. It's not, but um, that's where the problem lies. Uh, women's football has, has not uh, enough uh, standard and, and status within the decision making 
bodies of, of football worldwide speaking with very few exceptions. Yeah. Pedro, on your side, you already mentioned briefly on, on the potential financial impact on, on the women's teams in, in Spain. Um, so as the, yeah, you said, it, it'll probably be up to a million, something like that. Um, will there be any kind of support for those uh, women's teams? Because you said, like, obviously, some of them, they have strong male teams already, so they might, um, you know, cover this period without uh, that many issues. But the ones that are, let's say, more dependent on the, on the women's competitions, what, what kind of support do you think they, they will be able to, to, to receive? Well, during this pandemic, the, the Spanish government established one, one mechanism that was um, able for all, for all the, the companies in, in Spain and also the clubs could, could, could get into it, that this was just like, um, it's hard to say to make it easy in English. Um, so the government will pay part of the salaries, can be up to 70% of the, of the salaries, and the rest would be played by the club if they want to. So the players are not fired, they're just like in... Uh, they, they will get the same amount of money, but the government will take charge of some of this. So, um, yeah, this was also a recommendation to to our small clubs mainly because uh, this can be done without without any 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 big requirements, and this can save the season for them because of course, if, uh, I think it's also the role of 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 the government to help the companies to help. Uh, small companies and to help clubs and everyone in, in this situation. So from this point of view, this is the help that, that the clubs could could afford. Um, but that's it. I mean, no no more helps in terms of uh, federation or any other uh, spot government or something like this. And I, I'm not so sure also that, that they should we should get those help. I mean, the situation in Spain, there are many, many people suffering. So what we need to understand that this is a crisis when we've been hit hard. And of course, government cannot help everyone. I mean, we are not more important than, than, than a restaurant or than a hotel or something like this. So we have a mechanism that has been used by everyone. And in, in my opinion, this can save partly the problem or this can, this can help to stabilize the situation for the next month. But of course, I think global football will change. Uh, we, we've been hit hard because it was bad luck, on, so to say, because uh, mid-February we signed our first collective agreement, special in women's football, only for first division. So the club started to implement all the benefits and increase the salaries and everything. And just one month after that, the crisis came. And we, we signed the agreement because MediaPro, that is our broadcaster, made an extra effort and paid the clubs, increased the money that they were paying to the clubs because he believed it was important to support this collective agreement with the players. So the club said, okay, we have this new agreement on the broadcasting side. We have more money. We can afford all these changes and all these increases. Let's sign the, the agreement and just after increasing all the salaries one month after the crisis comes and of course the tv cannot pay all the contract because no more matches are being broadcasted and it's it's normal of that so it's been really hard it's been really hard so let's see how it looks like of course uh, as mike said women's football has increased a lot and the level has increased and and 10 years ago of, or even five years ago it was impossible to see someone paying fees for a transfer now 
we have time to, to, to see this and let's see in, in 10 years everyone will pay for the players. Uh, let's see how it affects. Yeah, let's see. I mean, the clubs are doing a, a strong support. We've, we've asked the clubs, do you want us to take to talk to the players' union and to say, okay, let's postpone the collective agreement for the future, whatever. And they said, no, no. I mean, we, we've signed this. We want to sign this collective agreement. We want to go ahead. But of course, we will we will need to sit down and everyone take the right decisions in the future to to make something stable. No? Nicole, a um, question for you from, from the audience, and, and I'm going to give it to you because you're from the UK. Um, and it comes from Kirsty Holland, who uh, used to be general manager at, uh, at Brighton. Um, and she's asking whether you think there'll be an impact on UEFA Women's Euro in 22, given it will likely fall in the same time as the Commonwealth Games. Because obviously, yeah, both competitions taking place in the UK, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I believe that, that those discussions were obviously happening um, with Birmingham and, and those running the Commonwealth Games. Um, I think it was going to be inevitable that there was going to be some sort of you know clash in the sporting calendar. It was never going to be perfect to have to shift these events. Um, I think you know Tatiana sort of alluded to it as well earlier in that there's lots of discussions is it going to be best for the euros um to to sort of stick where it was in 2021 and, and maybe have some sort of combined um euros with the men's um but then when the olympics was was changed as well you know the problems there because the olympics is a really big tournament for women's football a huge opportunity for us to generate those exposures um that we desperately need and that visibility um so then actually shifting it to to 2022 seemed to be really the the kind of um, best option. Um, but again, I think it's going to be very difficult to, to avoid, um, the, you know, the clash. And, and we always knew that the Commonwealth were going to be in 2022. I think the, the biggest thing, and, and this goes across the board with, with everything that we have to make decisions on now, it's, it's about the collective thinking of, of all the stakeholders involved to make it the, the best situation, you know, possible. And actually, how can we market both events effectively? How can we ensure that it gets the visibility you know, that's required? How can we ensure that the events, that the spectator and fan experience is the best um, at both events? And you know, I think that's something that, that sport needs to show its strength here in that coming through this, we've, we've got to work together. We have to create these, these sort of commercially viable models of sport moving forward. Um, and that is going to have an effect on, on the calendar of all these different events that we have for the next, you know, four, five, six years. So it, it's not ideal. But I think if we can all work together um, and ensure that that, you know, collaborative work and creativity um, can ensure actually that we, we make the best out of it. Great. Thanks. Mike, to come back to, to a point you, you made before about um, the situation with the NWSL, with having new deals in place since the beginning of this year, having new leadership. How, how does that all fit within your personal growth, growth plan for uh, Portland Thorns and how much will depend on the success of the league as a whole and the other teams that are either already in it or will join in the near future? How much, do you, how, how much does your growth depend on how much they put into the women's game and how much commitment and, uh, and believe they put in it? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, in the end, um, all of our leagues are associations and uh, we're, we're partners and in the NWSL and likewise in the MLS, 
um, we're, we're partners and we own this league together. And you know, one of the you know one of the hallmarks of American sports, particularly in American football, is um, soccer in our country. Uh, is there's there's quite good balance and parity. Unlike some leagues around the world, it's not always the top two or three clubs that are always contending and that the the discrepancy of resources and spending and payroll and uh, performance on the field between the top teams and the bottom teams um, isn't as great in our leagues in the States as you might see uh, elsewhere around the world. And so, uh, so yes, Christian, we need the, the Thorns can't exist without a healthy league. And uh, there will always be more successful clubs than others in any league. And I like to think we'll be among those, but we need, we need a healthy ecosystem, if you will, of, of women's football in our country. And you're seeing that there's been an increased investment uh, from other teams. The facilities have gotten a lot better. The spending in international players has increased. Um, and the investment in academies and youth programs has increased. And as I mentioned earlier in, in the discussion, there are a number of teams around the um, MLS teams um, around the country who want to invest in the women's game. And so we will be surprised that in two, three, four years that we don't we go from nine to 12 to 14 and beyond in number of, of teams. And so, so yes, we've got to take care of our business, but the league also has to be healthy. And that means healthy clubs, not just us. Right. Tatiana, based on what Mike has been saying so far, what's your um, perception on what needs to happen on our side of, of, the, of the ocean? And there's actually a good question from uh, one of our candidates, Benjamin Lines. He asked, you know, in order the success of women's football to, to, to continue to grow, does football need institutional change or cultural change, in your opinion? <laughs> uh, I think everything um there are so different areas worldwide it's it's hard to to give one specific answer i think i do think society has changed already a lot i think women's football has achieved such a higher status uh, awareness um, respect um, appreciation um from the society uh, that that you know that's not a topic anymore in our area I, i'm not speaking now about maybe south america or, or africa but but europe and north america definitely uh, institutionally, I do think that there's a lot, a lot to do. I've spent the last 20, over 20 years in, in international sports organization and now in a national association. And even though there's so many good things and, and great projects and, and good stuff, it, it just doesn't really come down from, from the top down. It's, it's too many lip services. It's, it's not really serious. Um, it, it's maybe men serious, but it, it doesn't really reflect uh, when it comes down to, to clubs and leagues and, and sponsorship deals and players treatments. And it's just still too much of, um, yeah, that's nice. We want to do it. But but then there's the gap is too big between um, the men's professional football and women's professional football. So um, the pressure right now comes from the, the, the society, the public, the media, and some partners, luckily, um, that helped a lot. Um, of course, the FIFA Women's World Cup last summer was amazing and helped again a lot. But um, that's why I see, as, as we have said, I see this as a, as a chance, this crisis for us, because um, it's really hard to change football structure on a sports political level. And, and to me, a crisis is the best moment to try to change it because you're really almost not possible 
to do it um, uh, if there's no crisis, basically. And this might help to, to have a more equality orientated inclusion, diversity, uh, women, men together, more a social approach to, uh, to football. And as a federation, I think that's our duty. We do have the professional game, but we also have the amateur game. And we should be a reflection of the society in our country. And we should make sure football can be played by all kids in our country in a safe environment. And um, that thought that it's for all needs to be something which is our mantra. And, and that's something we can try to, to get in our decision-making heads now in, in this crisis, because that's what might help. Yeah, so, so really focusing even more on, on grassroots, on, on like the non-elite, let's say, uh, levels of, of football. Yeah? Yeah, and I think that would uh, be too long now to discuss, but we have a high number of dropouts in, in the youth area. Uh, we have young kids who do not want to go to three training sessions a week on, at six o'clock and, and have a coach yelling at them. Uh, you know, there's there's a change in, in, in society and we need to adapt. And football should be, there should be the pro elite game, um, of course. And, and then there should be the fun and amateur game, which is played by 95% of, of the people in your country. Uh, and this needs to be a bit more... Uh, looked at, I think, so that we don't have that risk that football loses the the, the huge success factors we have towards society and people. Uh, I, I do think there's a bit of a risk right now between the elite level of the game and the people's opinions about football, and we need to make sure this gets um, back in line. Yeah, absolutely. Pedro, in uh, in Spain, women's football uh, has seen a period of professionalization, as uh, as you also mentioned in the previous years. At what stage of that process had you arrived before the crisis um, started? And, and what are the next phases going to look like? And, and there's actually a, a question from the audience from Cristobal Aranguiz. What are the main objectives in women's football in the short and long term? Um, well, uh, Mike, thanks for the kind words that you said before. Um, yeah, I, I think I think in link to the, the to the pandemic and to this situation now, I think women's football needs strategy i mean needs to really focus on on taking the right steps yeah um and for this we we everyone should be involved in this yeah uh, what we did uh, in the league was just just to 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 lead uh, to lead this this change to tell the clubs okay let's let's take the, the right step so and in spain what we decided to say is first of all analyze the situation in spain Spain was is a football country, of course. With with we're known for for having uh, one of the best clubs. We we're known for having great players. Uh, the fans are crazy. But in terms of women's football, no one knew women's football. I mean, it was just uh, the the mentality ten years ago, eight years ago was okay. Yeah, there's something called women's football. There are girls playing football, but that's it. And we have we had big brands. We had Barcelona. We had Valencia, we had Atletico Madrid that were big clubs investing in women's football, but the environment was not the right one. So, and this this was one of the reasons for La Liga to jump in women's football because those clubs were asking La Liga, "Hey, we are investing so much money in these projects, and it's it's nothing out because the environment is not right. We there was no commercial strategy, there was no awareness, there was no one knew from it. So, we we had to to build some some important stages. So, and one of the key points, and I totally agree, and I still remember 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I started to study all these things, um, 
I remember to analyze the situation in Portland, and Portland has been the role model for, for me at least, yeah, on, on how to really believe on this. And, and, and one of the things that I'm trying to show my clubs, or to show the clubs, is the importance of understanding that the clubs have two first teams. And this is something that is really in the DNA of, for example, Portland Thorns. I still remember this documentary on, on CONCACAF on YouTube that I, and, and as, as Mike told, everyone is not thinking on, okay, let's help the men's team. And we also have a women's team. No, no, we have two first team. And women's football has turned into such a valuable asset for the club. So that is so stupid not to really see the power of women's football for your organization. So, I, and I think we need to really work and focus on one objective is create a product. We need to, if we want to succeed, we want to grow. We need fans, we need the investment, we need the brands to jump in. And for this, you need to understand that you need to offer them something. So let's start building something that is nice to watch, nice to experience, nice to invest. In Spain, this season has been the first time ever in history that we sold our TV rights. And this is not because we are girls and we need to help them, it's because the broadcasters believe it's worth to invest in it last year we were building this product we were investing on the match day on the on how it looks like on tv on where the photographers are placed on 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 creating contents on on opening the big stadiums for selected matches so that that are surrounded by a good marketing strategy so and i and i think this belief on on really work creating something valuable, something big, a product working on this, this should be the whole strategy. And for this, I think after this pandemic, this strategy is key. Because if not, we will step back on five or 10 years ago. It's just not, oh, okay, let's how, how to rebuild the league for the next year. No, it's okay. How, how to really focus on developing something really professional, something really strategically, something, a good, valuable project on that. And, and for this, Again, my, my friend Mike is, 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 is the one, the, the example on, on how to understand this. this. This two first teams mentality is key for the future of women's football. Yeah, thank, thank you, Pedro. Nicole, um, in this confinement, obviously, uh, we as a society, as, as human beings, we, we miss a number of things, including you know, family, community, accessibility. How do you think women's football can turn this into an opportunity? once we're out of the situation? Yeah, I think, you know, women's football has some really clear values. Um, we've, we've talked about the, the equality, um, in inclusion, um, those sorts of things that women's football represents. And it's an opportunity to really shape society for, for a better future. Um, but I think also, you know, we've seen lots of attendance information around, you know, families coming to more women's sport, women's football particularly. Um, it's more accessible in terms of players, things like that. I think that presents a huge opportunity for commercial partners um, because, you know, when we do get out of this, brands, companies are going to want to invest in, you know, sports or, or vehicles that can emotionally connect with consumers. Um, and sport's always going to be a, a perfect vehicle for that. Women's football offers something very unique um, because of those values and behaviours that it instills in, in society. So 
again we've we've talked a lot all of us about the opportunity here and i think you know if i was at a club or or you know at a, at a rights holder looking ahead at the the calendar we've got the olympics next year the the, the euros the world cup what an opportunity to build that strategy that, that Pedro's talking about, you know, and, and look at that long term and that growth. And within that, the commercial opportunities, not just for, for broadcasters, but, you know, for, for brands to actually get involved and support this change that we all want to see as we come through this, this pandemic. Um, I think women's football really does offer that, that new um, that new look football that, that quite a few of the leaders in the game have been talking about. So for me, what a huge opportunity. And, and Pedro's mentioned it as well in that, you know, I, I can't get my head around why um, people wouldn't see women's football being a key part of your strategy, you know, and that, that process of looking at your first, your, your two first teams is absolutely critical. Um, for me, I have seen in the past too many examples of where, women's football is sort of grouped with the men's under 23s and, and sort of below. And actually it's that culture, it's that vision, it's that leadership to put it in, in the pedestal that it should be. Yeah, thanks, Nicole. Um, now I would like to finish off with uh, one question for, for everyone, uh, just to, to wrap the session off. Um, obviously, yeah, a lot of these things will have been mentioned to some extent uh, over the past, of, uh, over the past uh, hour or so, but for anyone out there working like yourselves in women's football, what would be your one top recommendation um, for them to do right now? If, if, for example, in the previous months and years, they've been hitting roadblocks and not being able to advance these kind of like mindsets uh, or strategies internally, what would be your number one recommendation that they can do now to make sure that over the next few weeks and months, um, they can finally, let's hope, uh, achieve some of that uh, change internally in their organizations. Diana? Okay, I take the first one. Uh, it's unfortunately not an easy one, <laughs> but I do think we need to have um, a fully embedded football structure. Like we all said, football is one. So it's top men's club, top women's club. Um, it has to be one because we can just take so many synergies from each other and learn from each other and, and enrich each other's. But at the same time, in some areas, sometimes commercial, sometimes sporting, sometimes whatever, PR, there has to be a women's football dedicated approach. The Women's Data Gender Gap uh, book has shown clearly that everything in the past has been focused on men and how men deal with it and what men do. And I think we need to open up that window and look at female specific stuff, medical issues, you know, um, all of these things. So it has to be both together, football for one and women's football specific. And if we can start think like that in the future, um, yeah, then I can, um, then I'm in my dreams and I can stop work to work in football. All right, great. Mike, what about you? Anything else that you haven't mentioned? Maybe something that you yourself recognize that you could actually do even more uh, for developing women's from your side? Yeah, you know, one topic we haven't really talked about, I think Tatiana and Nicole said it really, really beautifully, but one topic we haven't quite talked about, which I think is, which is really critical, and that is, you know, what the magic behind what we do as clubs and leagues and federations is this connection that we have with our community and with our fans. And that connection uh, now in this crisis we're in is more important than ever. And coming out of this crisis, being in lockstep with your community and what your community needs and being really truly part of the broader fabric of your community in, in a genuine way 
is going to is going to lift our game even higher, I think. And so as a club, you know, we're not just thinking about our business today and what we got to do. It's like, how do we fit into what everything else that's going on in our community, in our state, in our country? And how can we play a positive role in that? And how can we be a positive influence on people's lives just beyond sport? Um, because we do have unique platforms to do that in a way that other businesses don't. And if we can, you know, be a positive influence in the lives of our fans or and create new fans through that, then we're going to come out of this as a club much more quickly. And so we're thinking a lot about that. And then the last thing I'd say is, you know, will I, I believe, and Nicole alluded to this, sport, sport will be part of the healing process around the world. It always has been. After world wars, after Great Depression, sport has always been a place for healing, for people to come together and celebrate and be with each other. It may look different, but what also may be different is how people consume our game. You know, people are now, you know, grandparents are now using Zoom and they never heard of Zoom. And people are doing things online, doing things differently than, than they did two months ago. And how will that or can that impact how they consume women's football? And is women's football in a position to be more nimble and do things differently than perhaps uh, more mature, more developed sports? I think yes. And so we're looking at, do we present our game differently? Do we broadcast our game differently? How do our, fa how do our, our fans and players interact differently coming out of this? And so I think, you know, I think an underlying theme of the whole discussion today is as challenging as this is for the sport, for women's football around the world, it creates some new opportunities uh, and new ways to um, interact with our fans, energize our fans, and create new fans. Thank you, Mike. Pedro? Uh, the, co the coffee's kicking in. I'm sorry. <laughs> Good to hear. Pedro, any um, last recommendation from your side? Yeah, when, 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 if you need to convince anyone to jump on, on women's football, I would say the first answer should be, why not? Is there any reason to not jump in, really? There's no reason. Uh, there might be one reason or one one answer should be it's not economically viable yet, I would say, yet, because we have many examples. And in here, we have one big example that, that says it can be profitable. Of course, it can be. It's just about, I don't know any business that is profitable from day one. It depends on what you how you invest, what is your approach, uh, and how you treat the product. So... I would say if if you are a smart executive and you take a look on what's happening around you, you take a look on what's happening on the states, uh, on MLS franchises investing more and more on women's football. If you take a look on Europe, where all the big clubs, all the big clubs, are investing in women's football, your question should be: Oh, something is happening around. I mean. Maybe I should be there and maybe I should be there soon because maybe in 10 years or in five years jumping in, it's too late and you're late. And one of the things that Mike said, we, we as, as clubs or as, as, as organizations, we are fun oriented. I mean, we, everything what we do is sell entertainment to our fans, to our customers. So why, why forget one essential part of our customers that are women. That is half of the population. And of course, they are also following men's football. But I think the message of this of this equal treat or of this 
DNA of my club that is for me, men and women are the same and why treat them. It's not about how much they, they earn or it's not about salaries. It's, it's about how you treat the product and how you invest in the product and, and the respect you give to the product at, at this point, at least. Yeah. Um, it's not all about the money. It's about if you, if you really believe on this and you treat it with care, this is the message that you're giving to the mothers, to the daughters and, and those mothers are also the customers of your entertainment. And so why not taking advance, advantage of such a valuable asset that is women's football? I should be just, just don't be late. The thing should be don't be late. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Nicole, to wrap up your final thoughts, your one yeah. uh, biggest recommendation you would leave with other peers working in this sphere? Yeah, well, I mean, I think to certainly agree um, with what the guys have said as well. One thing that I'd read recently was um, that if the consumer economy had a sex, it would be female, um, purely because of the influence that females have over purchasing decisions. Um, so that is an absolute clear you know, question. Why wouldn't you want to get involved in women's football? Why wouldn't you want to invest? Um, so that's definitely something to really bear in mind. I think one thing that maybe we haven't mentioned is really looking into the future looking at things that, that will affect you know, our world and, and therefore sport and football, but is climate change. Um, you know, we've seen it even before this pandemic hit, um, we've had quite a few issues um, globally with, with climate change that has affected sport. And if we look you know, forward, that may well, and, and is very likely to have an impact. So we need to be ready, clubs, um, need to be ready to ensure that you know they are sustainable even beyond just being able to have live football playing being played we need to think about how we engage the fan bases how we bring in new fans how we keep the the fans that we currently have and ensure that you know we are future proof and i think what we desperately need in order to be future proof is leadership um, diverse leaders to match our diverse society and the change in consumer habits, the, the shift in those consumer behaviors, um, because without that, we are gonna lag behind. So I think those are the real important points. Um, you know, and if you're a student or, or you know, a player even looking to get involved in the football industry, you know, be passionate and be determined that, that you are gonna do that because you know, we need those views of, of people and, and experienced um, players within the industry and we need that diverse leadership to push through those cultures push through everything we've been saying through today yeah thank you so much nicole um and yeah with this it's time to wrap up uh, the seventh episode of uh, the fba series uh, thank you so much for everyone that tuned in uh, thank you of course to to our special guests um nicole allison um pedro malabia malabia tatiana haini and mike gollop Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you so much for sharing your optimism uh, on women's football with, uh, with the rest of the world. Thank you again for watching and stay safe. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and make sure to follow FBA on our social media channels to not miss out on the next episodes coming soon. See you next time.